I had never been in a position like that before where the principal of the company was telling me to lie to the public record keepers. And I told him the next morning that I was resigning. When Jesus found the money changers in the temple, he didn't call a board meeting or consult with his uh, right-hand people. He just kicked the tables over. As Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Serious people are not hostage to fortune or the choices and actions of others. The course they follow is set by personal determination and integrity. Hello, my name's Nick Cater. Thank you for joining me for Considerations, where I invite my guests to talk about the values and experiences that made them the serious people they are today. Tony McClellan grew up on a sheep station, mending fences, killing rabbits, and learning the discipline of just getting things done. It turned out to be the perfect apprenticeship for a corporate high flyer who ran property ventures around the world before entering the oil business. It took a crisis in his business and family life at the age of 47 to teach him the real meaning of achievement. I had the privilege of co-authoring Tony's biography, A Glorious Ride from Jumble Plains to Eternity, and I'm delighted he's able to join me today on Considerations. Well, thank you, Dick. Let's begin the story, Tony, on April Fool's Day, 1940, which I think, uh, I don't, tell me, do you have any memories of that day, first up? <laughs> Not many, but a lot of teasing since then. That was uh, the day you were born. That is, and uh, everybody, uh, many people, uh, remember my birthday because it's April Fool's Day. And you were born in Tullamore? I was. In the Tullamore District Hospital? I was. Which is in the, for people who are not familiar, that's in the far west of New South Wales. Yes, And um, I guess soon after that, taken to your home. Tell me about your childhood home. Well, the home was enormous. Uh, My grandfather built this uh, homestead and all the outbuildings, miles of outbuildings, separate cottages, shearers' quarters, the wool shed and lots of sheds, storage sheds and so on. And a very, very big home with verandas all around. And a a feature of it was uh, it had a huge ballroom in it where we had lots of community events. He was very community-minded, my grandfather. And so uh, we continued on, had lots of school functions and so on. The resourcefulness of, of a man like your grandfather, and your father, who took over the property afterwards, who you know, built the place first yes. and then ran this uh, fairly sizable, I think, sheep station mainly, was it? Sheep yes, you were growing? yes. Principally sheep, yes. I mean, it, that would be hard at any time. But back then, in in, um, in the 1940s when you grew up, I don't think you even had electricity, or certainly not mains electricity, did you? No, no, it didn't come for years and years afterwards. We had, and during my time, we had a 32-volt uh, engine uh, running a little set of batteries and just have half a dozen lights on in the house, and that was it. And there's no th- sitting back in that sort of situation and waiting for somebody else to do the work, is there? No. <laughs> it's one of the things that I've valued since, didn't like at the time, that you have to do it when the, when the need pops up. No time for deferral or mucking around till next Tuesday. One of the things you disclose in this book is you were you were the person who 
brought an end to the lives of a very large quantity of rabbits. <laughs> tell me, tell me about that. Uh, we had terrible problem with uh, rabbit plague uh, in the late forties and into nineteen fifty, until myxomatosis arrived, and uh, we we killed thousands and thousands of rabbits, and. I at one time did a very crude sum and estimated that I'd wrung the necks of 100,000 rabbits. And you went to school nearby? Uh, the school was a few miles away. We used to, on an adjacent property, and uh, I used to ride my bike, and hence the title of the book, a, book, a Glorious Ride. From Jumble Tones, yeah. And the cover picture, there you are on your bike. Yes. What kind of bike was that, do you remember? Uh, it was a Speedwell, as I recall. What was it like in a school like that? It, it, it couldn't have been very big. There were 11 pupils and uh, no one ever in my grade. So I went uh, five years of that school, second through sixth grade, with nobody ever in my class, but there were 11 kids there of all different classes, one teacher. It was a hell of a job for a, a, a young man to get out there and manage 11 people in different stages of their education. I, I, I would imagine, though, you had an education that was in many, in practical terms, there weren't, wasn't much in the way of resources, but you would have surely had an education which was very much better, I would imagine, than many kids get today. Oh, I'd say that's fair comment, uh, fair comment. And when I look around at their own children and their own grandchildren, they have sort of a very traditional uh, uh, approach to things and they, they don't, I can't comprehend what I went through when I was their age. So you could at least read and write, of course, and, and spell, I guess. Uh, and then you went to school in Sydney after that? I did, yes. When I'd finished sixth grade with this this little school, uh, tipped everybody out uh, and they went to high school. And I could have gone to a, the local high school, but there was no way of getting there. So my parents decided to send me to boarding school, to Scots College in Sydney. And that was one hell of a shock. Uh, I'd never mixed with boys before, maybe two or three at at uh, my school, and uh, and and ha- having then uh, mixing with a thousand boys, eleven boys in my my uh, uh, dormitory, it was very off-putting. Character forming, though, I would think. Oh, probably, probably, yeah. I didn't like it much, but I uh, no doubt got out, got used to it. No, you weren't particularly happy there, I think. No, I don't think I was. No. Is that a reflection on the school or just that you weren't ready? No, I, I think it's probably the, my background and my unfamiliarity and my shyness, you know, because I'd never been used, never played sport, never mixed with other boys. Uh, my schooling began with my mother at school of the year, school of the air. That's how I learned to read and write. And then in second grade, pedaled off to uh, this new little cottage, a little shack where the school was. So things change in 1956. Uh, you're, you're recalled from school. That's right. In fact, I left school in 55 when my dad became sick. He was an alcoholic and he became quite sick and uh, invited me to come home and I was damn pleased to come home. 
uh, leave school and get to work on the property. And then he deteriorated and died uh, on his 44th birthday, 18th of July, 1956. And um, so it was a, obviously a dramatic day for any any young man, but uh, important for me because I had to take over the running of the sheep station. At the age of 16? 16, yeah. That's, that's quite something for anybody today uh, when we think of somebody aged 16. They're barely out of short pants, right? Yes, that's and, right. And, and, and typically now I think kids move into adulthood later. They have longer at university and whatever. And it's not unusual, is it, to meet somebody in the late 20s who's never really started their career. But you showed that it was possible to... With, with you know, uh, uh, certainly no higher education. Yes. To to pick up and do something like run a sheep station yes. at that age. Yes, it's uh, it's uh, maybe a case of had to. Uh, it wasn't uh, prescribed that I do that. But uh, what am I going to do, living there? And my mother wanted to move back to Sydney. I to. My two sisters were at boarding school in Sydney, so my mother left the sheep station. She originally came from the city and uh, left me there all by myself in this giant homestead, cooking and sewing and cleaning and and uh, running the property. We had a bunch of men, obviously, and uh, so we grew up pretty quickly. I think what I found interesting in this book was was probing and exploring what made you, young Tony McClelland, at the age of 16, uh, capable of taking on that responsibility and capable of making a success of it and then making a success of what you did later in life? And um, I remember you said to me early on, you said, look, I didn't, you know, I came from fairly humble beginnings. I didn't have a silver spoon in my mouth or anything like that. And certainly that's, that's true in one sense. But the more I thought about it, the more we talked about your your father, your grandfather, your ancestors, came to me that you were really very lucky to have uh, a family that came from that Scottish stock. You know, the, 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 uh, you you were an ancestor of the Scots that came over in quite large numbers in the in the 18th century, as sorry, 19th century, to, as pioneers, and many of them became pioneers, farmers in Victoria and New South Wales. Yeah. And really helped build the, build this country, didn't they? And then you think of the people that came from that background. You know, uh, people like uh, Robert Menzies, our greatest yes. prime minister. People like the Murdoch family. You know, they're yes. all from that similar stock. Looking back, do you think that that Scottish heritage and what what that meant in terms of the values you were taught as a child and the examples that was shown to you by your father? Is, is that an important part of what went into you? Nick, it was you that drew this to my attention. I hadn't appreciated it before, and now I'm having thought about it. I'm so proud of what my grandfather accomplished. Get out there and find this, these thousands of acres and fell the trees, build sawmills, and, uh, and build the, all these houses and and a combination of all shapes and sizes, the woolshed, everything else. What a man. And what he did for the community, when I read his 
uh, right up when he died, uh, youngish from appendicitis. I didn't ever meet him. Instead, four years before I was born. But boy, I would have liked to have uh, been able to relate to him. I think he was quite heroic, and uh, I'm very proud to be connected with him, and suspect that I might have inherited some of his driving force or his great interest in getting things done. It it also shows the importance of something which I think is missing from today's society and that's recognition of the role of the father in what he hands over to his children in terms of example. Oh, so true, so true. I've just seen an interview by John Anderson of a woman in... Uh, in America who, who analyzes and comments on this and the f- first time it really struck me how important it is for a father to be close to his kids as, they, uh, as they're maturing. As a role model? Yes. Yeah. Your father was an alcoholic as you, as you say uh, which I guess was almost an occupational hazard when you lived oh, that God, far in the bush. Oh God, awful. Awful. And uh, and uh, he's a really, really good man and very well uh, liked in the district, a huge funeral and uh, uh, respected for his, uh, his uh, ability with stock. Uh, and uh, I certainly adored him like most people would adore their father. Uh, and a great, great tragedy that he had this problem and as did my mother. My mother wasn't as bad as he was but uh, both of them were just suffering awfully uh, from alcohol. And he made you promise something, I think. Yes, he did. He was a great deal. And uh, we passed it on to our two sons. And that is, uh, Tony, if you don't drink or smoke till you're 21, uh, I'll give you a thousand pounds. And because uh, he was dead when I was 16, but my mother, smart enough to pick up the promise, and uh, in fact, uh, 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 honoured that when I was 20, not 21. I was uh, about to get married, and uh, she gave me the thousand pounds, which bought me a sports car. I was pretty pleased. <laughs> so you're, let's get this straight. You're about to get married. You've got to prepare for. Married life, you buy a sports car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, I, maybe that sobriety that um, uh, in in those late teenage years in your twenties, maybe that was the secret between you know you being seems to be in you had this great can-do spirit. You'd take on anything. I was amazed to see you decided you wanted to set up a dance band. And, and learn the saxophone, and yes. sent off to Sydney for a saxophone, and then promptly learned it. Yes, yes, it's just, and uh, when I look back on it, I, it's hard to believe that I did that on my own initiative, and and uh, I didn't know anything about music or how you read music, but bought some music and bought an uh, uh, instruction book with the saxophone and told you which which uh, keys to put your fingers on and read the music and slowly got to understand how it worked and and uh, liked it a lot and and then bought a clarinet because it's compatible with a, a saxophone, although in a different key, and then taught myself to play the piano and then started 
leading dance orchestras all over the country. Sadly, or, or perhaps fortunately, no recordings have been preserved of that particular <laughs> nice man. And, and, and probably fortunately, probably pretty awful, but uh, it was so popular, ballroom dancing in the country, that part of the country where we were raised in those years. And you're a pretty handy cricketer as well. Well, I played a lot of cricket and uh, never a star, but I was captain of my local team and then captain of the Far West Eleven. And and um, so I think I had some leadership gifting mm. and and uh, I liked it and I worked hard at it. Mm. And you also had a gift with, with women, I think, at that time. <laughs> well, <laughs> tell, tell me how you met your wife, Ray. Well, Ray was a school teacher who came into the local town uh she was 19 and uh and boy pretty as a picture uh nothing like that i remember her white shorts and beautiful tanned legs and they were pretty spectacular and i met her at the uh at the uh, local hotel and she came down for breakfast and uh I was having breakfast, and I wondered what on earth this strange girl was doing in this country town. But uh, we struck it off uh, quickly and easily, and uh, uh, after a year and a half, we got engaged, and after less than two years, we were married. And again, I mean, this an, an accelerated progress into adulthood compared to what people would think was the norm these days. So you were married at what, 20, 21? Yeah, 20. We were both 20. And really proud to say we're both now, <laughs> equally, uh, celebrated over 60 years of marriage. So it's mm. been a fantastic relationship. Congratulations, Tony. And, and that's an example, I think, to to all of us. Because I know from having written the book that it 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 it, it, it hasn't come easily at times. Marriage is something no. constantly has to be worked on that, that love is something that only flourishes when you commit to some to, to making it flourish well put Nick um, we'll come on to that difficult period in a moment which I think illustrates that but first of all let's talk about your your uh, skyrocketing career you, you arrive in Sydney first don't you in that's what, right what when year Ray, was that Ray, Ray uh, um, we were married in 1961 and in 62, um, Ray had a nasty medical condition and uh, and they, she was told not to have uh, uh, children for a number of years. And uh, we decided that, she decided really, or encouraged me to move to Sydney so I could get educated. I left school when I was in fourth year and I... Um, I managed to get into Sydney University and study, and I studied really hard. I was not because p- particularly bright, but uh, because I knew how to work hard, had long hours, and uh, did very well. Won all the prizes. Uh, when I graduated, the man who gave me the uh, award said I'd had the highest grade since 1929, and that set me off on a career. Uh, of uh, of property development and I spent time both in Sydney and Melbourne and also in Adelaide to a lesser extent I opened an office there I worked with uh, had a great joy of working with Ken Menzies Sir Robert's son mm-hmm. uh, he was my partner in Melbourne mm-hmm. one of my partners 
and uh, I, we did very well. The firm did well. Uh, I, I left the firm and was encouraged by a uh, very large financier to put up all the capital to uh, form a new company, which we did, and we got into condominium, home unit development, and became the biggest in Sydney. And then I was uh, approached to uh, go and look at a big project in Egypt, a new city for 45,000 people on the outskirts of Cairo by the pyramids. Would you please have a look at this and tell me what you think? Well, it's just... Stop there and take stock of what you've just said. So you 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 come from Jumble Plains, your property uh, in the western districts of New South Wales, to Sydney, and and then via Melbourne. I think you spent a bit of time in Melbourne. Yes, uh, it's a great era, of course, if you're in the property game, because this is really the start of the the high rise boom right, really not right. not that we think of those buildings particularly high rise by today's standards right. but nonetheless you know at a time when the AMP building was the tallest building in Sydney this was Sydney going up in the world yes, wasn't it yes. and Melbourne similarly uh, and you do that in your early early 20s but so at what age did you get approached to go and build a brand new city in Egypt I was 35 yeah. uh, 35 I was uh, I was uh, elected senior partner of my professional firm at age 30 and uh, then left and formed this other company. And when I was there at the senior partner, you talk about high-rise, I was very involved in planning and developing a centre point, which was then the tallest building in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. And so had some, I suppose, important breakthroughs there. And uh, I got appointed by the... New South Wales government to plan the redevelopment of the entire rocks area, which was a huge job. No, no computers in those days. All the math, all the feasibility studies are done by hand and um, uh, worked very intensively in that for more than a year. And then invited to have a look at this. Just, it was just one more thing to look at. And I went off and spent a couple of weeks away and came back and reported to the man that I thought it was a fantastic project. But there were five things that I would have uh, I'd be concerned about and I'd want to see addressed. And he said, thank you very much. Now I'd like you to go and manage it. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Uh, I said, no, I sit in the corner office. I've got 50 employees with the biggest condominium developer in Sydney. Why would I want to go to Egypt? Mm. But... Uh, we decided to do it and learnt Arabic, packed up the kids, and off we went. Yes. Now, an interesting experience. So it seems to be success in, in one sense in that you, you were able to uh, get this thing almost off the ground. You got the financing. You went to some very wealthy people to help with the financing. But then it, it, it hits the skids. What happened? Uh, President Sadat, who I admired enormously and had a very good association with, um, uh, was assassinated, as you may recall, uh, by the Muslim elements. And um, just before he was assassinated, he was attacked politically for allowing foreigners in to develop these, this project in Egypt. 
allow Egypt to own 40% of the project and it would 100% reverted to it after 99 years. The nationalists, uh, both the leftists and the rightists, didn't like this. He'd allowed opposition parties in parliament and the stink uh, got worse and worse. And finally, he uh, came to the conclusion and probably a wise conclusion, though I hated it at the time, to stop it. And he nationalised it. And uh, in just overnight, we read that we no longer owned it. And uh, we had lots of endless discussions about how they were going to compensate everybody, us and all our investors and so on. And eventually, uh, with no progress, uh, I filed a claim at the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris to have it arbitrated. Yeah, and that's a story in itself, which I guess we won't have time to go into, but that's yes. what the book's for. Uh, and, and I mean, again, your audaciousness, your, your just, you know, let's have a go spirit where you decide to sue the Egyptian government yes. and, and end up end up winning, although it takes some, some while, of course. And you're working for a Canadian called Peter Monk. Yes. Uh, who just comes across in your book as just quite a charismatic and inspiring character. Extraordinary guy. Yeah. And so uh, he, he had once um, the uh, the Pyramids Oasis project falls over in Egypt, he's got other work for you. What's next? Well, he he asked me if I we'd moved back from Egypt to London and was working in the same office with him. So I spent a bit of time getting to know him uh, better. And uh, he turned to me one day and he said, would you mind moving your family to Toronto, which was his hometown, and and uh, getting an office built for me. I'd like to move our whole office uh, out of London and back to Toronto. And I said, okay. So we packed up and went to Toronto and went to work in the office, got it ready. He moved across with his gang. And not long after, a few months after, he called me up one day and he said, Tony, are you doing anything? And I said, well, five minutes, I'll be free of what I'm on. Good, good. Come up and see me. I'm with my partner, David Gilmore, in the hotel next door, uh, room 1206. And so I walked up there and and uh, he welcomed me and said, Tony, David and I have decided to sell our chain of hotels and resorts. They had 69 hotels and resorts in the Pacific. And uh, we're going to invest in the resources business, in gold and uh, in oil and gas. Wow, so that's impressive. And uh, he said, then, David and I want you to be president. <laughs> well, I'm a country boy. I've been in the property business. What do I know about oil and gas or gold? And they said, uh, you, you just roll up your sleeves and get things done. We can trust you. We know how well you get on with people. And uh, we'd like you to take it on. Yeah. And uh, after talking with Ray, I decided to take, take it on and went off and tried to learn something about geology and so on and and began these two exercises, two enterprises and uh, 
got intensively involved, traveling in a huge amount, finding opportunities, raising capital, finally getting company listed and so on. So you try to commute at first from uh, Canada to Tulsa, but it all gets a bit much as it would. Uh, so uh, you moved the family yet again. Yes, um, we did. Tell me about Tulsa. Uh, Tulsa is um, it's quite different. It's A lot of people in America haven't been to Tulsa. They know about it, but it's not the, you know, Oklahoma City is the big city in, in Oklahoma but it's very much the center of the oil business, or as they say in America, the oil business. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so there's a lot of activity, and we acquired uh, a controlling interest in a, well, a good-sized oil and gas company there, and it got into a bit of strife, and so I offered to Peter to go down and try to straighten it out, and uh, commuted, and then brought the family, commuted for a year, and uh, then brought the family down. It, it, during that period, you know, both when you're working in Egypt, but in also later in that working in the resources sector, uh, you 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 had a lot of contact, didn't you, with um, Adnan Khashoggi, who was the you know uh, uh, one of the great um, names of that time, yes, yes. Sa- Saudi Arabian, who uh, had a lot of money and you go to for funding because that led you into quite a different circle didn't it private jets lear jets (laughs) it's amazing to look back on it now how a country boy could find himself in this position but uh, peter monk and his partner teamed up with the khashoggis who put up half the capital for for them to launch into their new activity and um and he and his brother SM are very charming, hospitable, helpful people. And because I was a sort of chief operating guy, I had a lot to do with them and uh, I visited them all around the world. I had places everywhere you could think of Paris and London and Hawaii and Santa Barbara and so on. Including on their yacht, the, oh, yes, the, the been... Nabila, which. which uh, starred in the James Bond film Never Say Die Again and uh, was later sold to a ambitious New York property de- developer by the name of Donald J. Trump. Yes, <laughs> yes it's weird. You, did, you, did you feel like a fish out of water in those Well, days? it's just so weird. They were so hospitable and so uh, honouring. You know, when when Ray and I arrived uh, on the Dabila, they just... Uh, turned it on for us as if we were some stars yeah. and uh, well they had a, a substantial interest in the company of which I was the chief operating guy and I suppose they wanted to know who I was and how I did and uh, they were very very hospitable wherever we went and uh, so we spent time on his yacht there when it was at uh, Monaco, and then SM had a yacht, remember spending time on in uh, in the Bahamas. And so out of character for a country boy flying on the Concorde and and yeah. jumping across to Monaco you, and getting on this yacht. You meticulously kept records of every flight you made, which you, you shared with me when we were writing this book, so I counted it up. 1981, you crossed the Atlantic 15 times 
14 of them on Concord flying above the surface, high above, uh, 18 kilometres above the surface of the Earth at twice the speed of sound. And then on one ship, you you see um, a handsome man with you there, close to you in in Concord, who who, everybody's asking for autographs, and you ask the hostess who it was, and she said, that's Christopher Reeves, the actor. Uh, You you had a conversation with him. I did. He was... He was absolutely charming, yeah. very nice family man, and he was studying the script for his next Superman role, and uh, but and took the time off to chat to me, and uh, very, I was very touched to be mm. close to him. There you are with Superman, literally flying fa- faster than a speeding yes, bullet. There you are. <laughs> so it's one of many lovely stories in there. The people you met, some of whom are famous, some of whom are not, but all have got interesting anecdotes attached to them. Um, we'll, we'll, let's jump a few steps. Let's get you, you your time at uh, with the Barrett Group. Um, you end up uh, leaving that job and going to. Uh, Houston, I think, at that point. And what, what, what? You take up business in of your in your own right in your in your early uh, to mid forties. Yes, uh, uh, we had uh, an investment, uh, controlling investment, in a company called um, American Completion and Development Corporation (ACDC), and uh, we were financing the completion of oil and gas wells. Uh, it wasn't doing well. We didn't have a good management team, and I proposed to Peter that I buy it out from Barrick, which I did, and uh, renamed it, raised a lot more money, a heap of new money, and uh, uh, it virtually uh, extended the business. Uh, that was a very enterprising and profitable thing to do, until the price of oil fell from about $40 a barrel to about $13 a barrel. And I knew that we couldn't make any money at that point, so I called back all the loans that we had out and got them back quickly before the oil price bottomed and and then realised that we wouldn't be able to continue on from there. We had a discussion, Ray and I had a discussion about what next, thought about coming back to Australia, and I had this really bright idea that we should stay and let our two sons uh, graduate from university in America. Then when we came back, they'd be able to get really good jobs with that education. So yes, that, let's do it that way. So where are we going to live? Well, let's move to Atlanta. Why Atlanta? Well, we had the busiest airport in the world, tremendous communications from there. And uh, it was a nice setting, mm. and we decided to move to Atlanta. And just after we'd made that decision, out of the blue, I got a call asking if I would take on the presidency of L.J. Hooker in America, headquartered in Atlanta. And uh, after a bit of messing around, I said, yes, I would. And uh, so we moved to Atlanta, and I slotted into that role. There's some interesting uh, insights into your approach to business, um, particularly ethics in business, in, yes. in the story of your fairly brief time with L.J. Hooker working yes. for 
it's uh, it, it's uh, uh, the, the enigmatic figure that ran the company, right. George Hersky. Exactly. Uh, you you quickly discovered, I think, when you you joined L.J. Hooker, which looked on the surface like a company that was going somewhere yes, in America. Yes, did. That there were problems, right? Yes. And, what, and they were what? Yes. In the housing division, there were five divisions in the company. Housing division was quite big and strong. Uh, but the housing market was going through a significant downturn um, at the end of 86 and into 87 when I moved in. And uh, I found that uh, the president and the chief financial officer and another senior executive were deceiving the company about the number of unsold houses that we had in inventory. And when I looked into it, we, we had... We sort of had a plan to have no more than a couple of hundred or 250, and we had 900 unsold houses in a rapidly declining market. So I jumped in one of our jet planes, flew all over the countryside where we we were developing in eight states then, and uh, quickly concluded that we needed to write down the price of some of these properties uh, to reflect the market, and then the fact that they were unsold for some of them unsold for a couple of years, and uh, and uh, George Herskew arrived shortly thereafter. I told him that I thought we ought to have a uh, ought to write down, and uh, I've forgotten the number now, but it's something like seven million or something. And uh, he said, No, 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 I can't do that. I'm my shares are on margin call. It'll drive the price down, and I'll be in trouble. And um, well, I said, well, then we'll have to tell the auditors. No, 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 they keep it a secret. <laughs> so I had never been in a position like that before where the principal of the company was telling me to lie to those who, to the public record keepers. And uh, so I took all the records to my house. They were then, in those days, handwritten and... Uh, uh, I was concerned that somebody would manipulate them, and I told him the next morning that I was resigning, that I was no longer going to work there, uh, but I'd stay until he found a replacement. This is in the early 80s, of course, to this put it is, in its yes. context. Uh, so, um, of course, there were some spectacular uh, collapses right. uh, uh, towards the end of the 80s right. in, in Australia, yes. people like Herskew. Uh, and, and it was simply that they'd been engaging in sharp practices, I guess, of various forms. Um, Probably, yes. Uh, over-leveraged. Yes, um, yes. Did, could, didn't have the assets to back up right. Uh, right. what was happening. And and, uh, and that period came to a crashing end. But yeah. you, you, see, you had a determination that the only way to conduct business was above board, everything above on the table, yes. if there were problems. If there were problems, confront them right away, right, instead of duck-shoving them. I uh, think that's a key part of it, uh, a key part of it, and I, I've said in my book that um, when Jesus found the money changers in the temple, he didn't call a board meeting or consult with his uh, right-hand people. He just kicked the tables over. Yes, <laughs> he didn't call in ASIC, right? Yes. <laughs> um, let's just fast forward a little bit here. So you 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 eventually 
you you have to leave LJ Hooker because you just can't work there, and and you have other ventures you get into, including either in the early eighties a software venture uh, yes. uh, uh, that that's uh, software to protect people on the internet. Right. Very far far forward looking at a time yes, when yes, many yes. of us hadn't even heard of the internet. Um, uh, and but there are issues around that. One one thing and another, you reach a point where you basically run out of money. Exactly right. In Houston. Exactly right. In Atlanta. Atlanta. Yes. Sorry. Yes. So we uh, we uh, I, I'd become a bit cocky, confident about my ability to raise capital for this new venture, and I'd never been in that part of the business world before. <clears throat> Just imagine it was like other parts where I'd spent a lot of time raising money and getting companies going, and I couldn't raise the money as I'd hoped to. And uh, we kept pouring all our savings in until we poured the last dollar in, sold uh, two cars to generate a bit more cash, and eventually ran completely right out. And uh, then couldn't pay the mortgage on our house, and our house was foreclosed on. So we had to move out of our house, move some furniture. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty traumatic time. I but think that's an important part of your story just before that we should go back to, because this will set up the importance of how you coped, in a way, with that financial crisis. You'd, you'd had, a, if you like, a sort of, not so much a personal bankruptcy, but a... a it seemed a bankruptcy in your relationship, if I could put right. it like that. The travelling around had obviously taken its toll, even on somebody as patient as Ray. Yes. Uh, so tell me about what happened then. Um, Ray, uh, I, Ray, I'd taken Ray and the family and their three friends to church on Christmas Eve in uh, 1986. And um, uh, we thoroughly enjoyed the service. And in the beginning of 87, the first few days, Ray and I had a big argument. And it was, um, I think, as a result of my failing to recognize that she needed a little more attention. And I was so engrossed in what I was doing with uh, my business world and ex- extraordinary amount of traveling at one one year I spent 35% of my nights in a foreign country and Ray said to me uh, I'm not going to put up with this I'm going to go back to Australia I shook my head and said oh, I've heard that before and I just went off to a tennis ranch and played tennis for a couple of days and came back and she left I couldn't believe it I didn't believe she'd have the courage to do that so I was heartbroken, and uh, fortunately the minister uh, of the church we'd attended um, came round to see us, as uh, good ministers do when they get new people at their church, and uh, where's Ray? Well, she's gone back to Australia. I can't believe it. You need, you need Jesus. And I said, no, I need help. And uh, uh, I didn't know Jesus could provide the help. Anyway, we, uh, he was so strong and supportive and uh, we knelt down and prayed together and um, 
I became saved and I bet, uh, began a whole new life, desperate to get connected with Ray again. Ray was so afraid she didn't want to talk with me. But after a week or 10 days, she did and allowed me to negotiate my way to come back, come down to Sydney to get reunited, which we did. And we began our new life together. Came back uh, after a few days in Sydney, back to Atlanta and started a whole different way of living. Yeah, I mean, that that, that story uh, really spoke to me because I remember that in my own life and, and I think anybody who's been married uh, for I guess at that stage, what twenty plus years? Yeah, yeah. You can take that marriage for granted. Yes. You can think you're doing the right thing yes. because you you're working hard and you think yeah. that's for the benefit of the family to give yes. them a better life, good education, yeah. good home, and everything. But you're just neglecting the relationship, aren't you? Yes. You're not investing in that relationship. You're right. Um, and I think that that's it's a lesson to all people younger than yeah. us starting out uh, yes. one of many lessons in the book yes, yes. Um, but, but your faith it then becomes the the bedrock of of your life it, it's it's how you deal with it the future challenges it's what helps you frame them um, well, and and this is important because you talk about the vine yeah. tell me that story well we had the great good fortune when we were uh, flat broke to be invited to a retreat by uh, walk through the Bible and received over the long weekend uh, uh, teachings on from John 15 on the vine and uh, where uh, Jesus speaks of uh, of uh, abiding in him uh, and God comes along and prunes us. And those uh, branches that are not abiding him, he cuts off and puts in the fire. Those that are, he prunes so that they'll become even more fruitful. We all, <laughs> we've all pruned our rose trees. We know how it works. Uh, and when he prunes you, it's very painful, very disconcerting. And one wonders whether it's punishment for unconfessed sins or what it is and we dealt with that in a very positive aggressive way and he uh, I think recognized that we were trying earnestly to do better and since then it's uh, the blessings received are just unimaginable we were broke from the company I managed to contact a man from the Netherlands who was interested, I was told, uh, would be interested in our product. And he sent his man across and uh, they reviewed it from top to bottom and the following morning said to me, uh, would 10 million do? I <laughs> just, 10 million when, you know, $100 was a lot in those days. So he, uh, he agreed to finance the company and uh, we managed to, we increased our staff to 50 and managed to take it public. And we eventually um, got that going and then came, made our way back to Australia. A lot of people struggle with faith. I guess we all do to some extent. You do, I do. Yes. Uh, but I think the point I want to come to here is that um, 
there'd be many people listening to this or reading your book, hopefully, who would say, well, you know, I just struggle with the idea of God and, you know, the Gospels and, you know, I I struggle with the faith that's required to take the Gospels at face value, to believe that they are God's Word. But I think what you show in this is that, let's put that on one side, to have a framework, a philosophical framework, a mental framework, if you like, that says, tells you how to deal with suffering, that tells you... uh, you know that it's not the end of the world and that gives you some hope that you'll work through this it's got right. it's God testing you it's God making you stronger that I'm sure everybody should be able to recognize that as a good thing to have yes. as a way of dealing with all the difficult things in life yes. uh, and it's also a way of dealing with the blessings in life isn't right. it, it I is. think that's very sensible um, and, and leads to a better and calmer and happier life I would think and the hope of the life after so I struggle to see why everybody doesn't at least say well this is good (laughs) because many people around today that would would would, you know they'd immediately dismiss you because you're a man of faith yes yes there's something weird about you uh, uh, some people would say I think another really important thing that happened at the time serendipitously but Uh, I know of part of God's plan as I was invited to a lunch not so long after I got very involved in our church became senior warden of the church and so on and uh, I met a man who um, came up uh, wrote a book called Half Time and the the thesis was when you reach half time in business you better take a a moment, pause, and have a look and see whether you've been contributing to society. And I was really taken with this. And it happened at about the same time as we were converted. And uh, uh, I bought the book. I, I actually think he might have given me a copy of the book, but I liked it so much. And I pulled it out only the other day, only a week ago, and found it all heavily marked up where I'd been through it. And I bought copies for every one member of our family. I was so taken with it. And it's been very much got subconsciously into me about it's about time we did something for other people. And Ray was really supportive of that. And so uh, so much of our effort and time and involvement has been on not-for-profit causes uh, uh, since then. Never let a good midlife crisis go to waste. No, <laughs> that's well put. Um, yes. I love this idea. I mean, in this this is what I loved about your story that that, that you you consciously think, well, I'm going to live the good life now. I'm, yes. I'm going to um, I'm going to be uh, live the life as as God would intend me yes, to live it. Yes. And and I wrestled at first with trying to get what does that strategy mean in practice. And and then in the end, I think I I. I've, I looked at it like this. Tell me if I got it right. So, it's that you just start. You can work as hard as you were. You can. You should. You should. You should carry on yes. being successful in business. You know, getting great not-for-profits right. going and everything. And they should be the best you can do. And you should yes. be chasing money and all the rest yes. of all these things are supposed to be so bad. But you're focused not on your benefit, but on the benefit. How can this benefit others? Yes. Well, uh, yes, and I think we probably began when we didn't have a lot of money uh, uh, saying, well, 
will serve on the boards of some of these organisations because I've had a lot of business experience, may be able to contribute there. I can't give them 100000 a year as a donation, but we built up, uh, helped build up these organisations. And uh, when we came back to Australia, we got stuck into it to an even greater extent. And the, the epitome of all this is that um, I was given an opportunity after we'd been back here a few years to uh, look, in fact, invited to give CSIRO some advice on a invention they'd made uh, for the uh, mining business. And I was absolutely blown away. I thought it was fantastic. And I told them so. And they came back to me after a few months and said, well, you like it so much, why don't you give us a proposal to commercialise it? And so I jumped on that idea and was able to raise the money, initial capital $15 million, to get this thing off the ground. Did a huge amount of work speculatively and uh, got the company off the ground. And uh, it's now been a monstrous success. The, the uh, price of the shares, we just raised another 50 million, price of the shares has gone up 22 and a half times. Just uh, unimaginable. And uh, we, we believe it'll be listed next year and it'll obviously be at a higher price. And so we're able to give this great benefit to our foundation to give away to Christian causes and the scale of that will be in the many many billions it just and I know Ray and I know that's because we were faithful when the chips were down others might have made a different decision I mean Big you, others might have made a different different decision in your position you live in the most beautiful harbour city in the world you might have decided to go out and buy a yacht and yes. take, take your pals out <laughs> yes. every weekend and 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 so I was thinking about this. I mean, sure, if you did that, that would bring happiness and cheer to your life a little bit anyway. It would certainly bring a lot to your friends. I'd love to yeah. join you on your, your yacht, Tony. <laughs> but if you think about the sum total of of benefit it would deliver to to people, to God's kingdom compared to what you will be able to deliver taking the route that you have, a path of philanthropy, I, I begin to get why what what the path you've chosen is yes. is, is the life dedicated to others and yes. not yourself. You see how God's worked in our life. You mentioned yeah. yacht. I've been in the biggest private yacht in the world. <laughs> you know? Didn't cost you a penny. <laughs> yeah, it didn't cost me a penny. And, uh, how, how could we buy a yacht? It would be just so paltry compared, <laughs> compared with the Nabila. You know, just, uh, so I'm, uh, we were blessed with those experiences and, and that indulgence that we were given. Uh, we were crushed. Uh, we turned to God for help. And he gave us all the help we needed to get out of that problem. And then he presented this opportunity. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just so thrilled, so honoured, so proud that he would have uh, uh, respected our thoughts, our ideas, and trusted us. Tony, when I, when I, when I agreed to, 
write this book with you, I felt this would either make or break our friendship. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm delighted to say that it's it's deepened our friendship and much more than that. I've I've learned and been inspired by so much in this book, and uh, my hope is that others will be too. So thank you, Tony, for the book, and thank you, Nick. Thank you for taking me on your glorious ride. <laughs> <laughs> That's very nice of you. Thank you.